The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, we hear a recording of an event that I was privileged to attend at the Museum of Transport and Technology's aircraft hangar at the Sir Keith Park Memorial Airfield in Auckland. This was a very special event put together to unveil the new nose art and markings on New Zealand's own Lancaster. The Lancaster at Motat, as the museum is known, has new markings as NE181, a Lancaster that served with number 75 New Zealand Squadron in World War II. It was one of only around 30 Lancaster bombers that completed over a hundred operations. The aircraft now has the stunning nose art that was worn by the original NE181, a cartoon character and the name The Captain's Fancy. The MC introducing the event is Phil Ferner. Right, good afternoon ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to the Aviation Hangar here at MOTAT. Um, before we get started I'd just like to thank Michael Frawley, the Chief Executive Officer for MOTAT, um, for closing the hangar to allow the service to take place. Um, we greatly appreciate it. Right, we have a number of uh, special guests here today. Um, first and foremost, uh, the veterans who are present. So thank you very much for turning up. Um, we also have um, representatives of the Emsley family. Um, Mrs. Ware, whose husband flew in this particular aircraft that we're commemorating today. And also the son of Stan Heald, David, who Stan Heald was the bomb owner. We also have the honorary consul of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, René van Rijn and his wife, uh, Air Vice Marshal Mike Yardley, Chief of the Air Force, Colonel Tim Woodman, the United Kingdom Defence Advisor, Group Captain Mike Longstaff representing the Royal Air Force, Wing Commander Stuart Oliver representing the Royal Australian Air Force. We also have the RNZAF Chaplain, Squadron Leader, the Reverend Stuart Height. Also, Air Vice Marshal Peter Adamson, Chairman of the Air Force Museum, and Therese Angelo, Director of the Air Force Museum. I'd now like to introduce Michael Frawley, the Chief Executive Officer for MOTAT. Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. Ki te tumai, nei tumai, tumai. 
Ra, re, no, ra. No, re, ra, tia. Fari, tute. Ko, Michael Froy, ho. Ko, tia, kaihatu, o motet. I was supposed to have a translator um, here to help me uh, through this, but unfortunately he's got delayed in uh, traffic. Anyway, it's my great uh, pleasure to welcome you all here to today for the um, unveiling uh, of, of this uh, particular nose cone art. But before I um, do that, I suppose it's worth reflecting on, uh, in Maori culture, you would normally sort of pay homage to those who have gone before you, uh, your ancestors. But in this case, I think uh, it's appropriate for us to pay homage to those of Bomber Command, those who have dedicated uh, their lives in the pursuit of peace so that we can enjoy the freedom and the uh, lifestyles that we have today. I also think it's appropriate um, to pay homage to those who gave up their lives 100 years ago uh, and during World War I. And as you probably know, the start of those centenary um, uh, remembrances and celebrations uh, start this year. This um, plane and the nose cone art actually don't actually belong uh, together. The, um, uh, the plane in question was actually given to us by the French government. It was actually given to the people of New Zealand in recognition of uh, the Bomber Command's um, service, uh, not only to France, but to Europe as a whole. Its uh, current condition is down to the contribution of um, quite a few people over the last 50 years, because the plane was actually uh, delivered and gifted to the people of New Zealand in uh, 1964. And uh, a lot of people have worked and put a lot of um, um, heart and energy and um, enthusiasm into the production of this, and in particular, uh, one individual and his team, uh, Commander Bill Simpson, uh, worked on this plane between 1980 and uh, 2000 to actually get it into the state that it is today. Um, so I suppose that it's actually worth reflecting and thanking both the, the French government and for all the various people that have actually worked on, on the plane over the years. The plane that we're actually um, coming to sort of uh, reflect on today actually has a uh, unique story and it's connected to New Zealand and like I say even though this is not the plane uh, you will hear shortly about the significance of it and the connection uh, with New Zealand. Anyway like I said it's my great pleasure to welcome you here today and, um, and um, I will hand over to Phil for the next part. Thank you Phil. Alright thank you very much Michael. I'd now like to call upon Ron Mayhill, the President of the New Zealand Bomber yep. Command, to address the guests here today. Open. Hold that canvas. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, we in Bomber Command are very proud of our exhibit in this hangar. What began many decades ago with fundraising to save a derelict Lancaster wasting in a paddock has developed with professional expertise and modern technology into this splendid aviation hangar of international repute. The new nose art on our Memorial Lancaster, Captain's Fancy, brought back many memories, many memories of that lucky plane in sea flight, eventually to do 100 operations on 75 New Zealand squadron. I was in B flight, so I never got to fly in Captain Fancy. But I saw it many, many times when the squadron taxied up and converging lines to take off an operation. It was just a lucky aircraft. On the 29th of June 1944, we were all woken up at four in the morning by a huge explosion. 
At breakfast, we learnt that a plane in sea flight has blown up. Probably a delayed action bomb that someone had forgotten to defuse. After breakfast, we went across the airfield to have a look. All that was left of Sea Charlie was a huge crater and scattered debris. A wheel had gone through Sutton Church window. All planes were grounded, of course, for inspection. M. Mike, this was M. Mike, the future Captain's Fancy, was intact, except for a few tears, a few holes and dents and things like that, which the ground crew quickly patched up. On the 20th of July, 75 Squadron lost seven aircraft in one night. It was on the Hamburg oil refinery trip. The captain's fancy came back safely. I shall tell you about one operation we did in the good company of captain's fancy. It was on the 28th of August. 75 Squadron was sent to bomb and mine at Stetton, part of Operation Spinach, attacking the ports in the Baltic that were transferring troops and supplies to the Russian front. Three crews were to canoe east to Garden, that's our term for mining, in the Gulf of Danzig. The Hadley crew, Adolf and us. We had the doubtful honour of doing a timed run from the 35-mile Hellspit, a naval base thought to be sheltering a couple of cruisers, the Admiral Hipper and the Nizal. We took off a little after eight. It was still light and keeping below 1,500 feet below enemy radar, we could see Captain's Fancy and the others silhouetted against a brilliant red sunset. Nearing Denmark, we climbed through thunderclouds to 10,000 feet, the turbulence and the icing offering protection from night fighters, searchlights and flak. We were routed over neutral Sweden. The towns and the roads, the villages, all ablaze with light. It was so different from the blackout in London and Britain. Then came the final leg to the Gulf of Danzig, where the other two were going to mine, or garden as we called it. Hellspit lived up to its name. All Helen Frury broke out. A pale master beam knocked onto us, and then we were coned by searchlights. After corkscrewing for several long minutes, we suddenly broke clear. We powered up again to bombing height and again did our timed run from Hellspit and released our bombs, which were mines, released by parachute. Our photo run taking us to 19 degrees east. Back in friendly darkness, the partisan engineer conferred on the best airspeed and boost to conserve petrol. We came back the same route, noting Stetton was ablaze to port, and we learnt later that the David King crew went missing at Stetton. We landed 10 hours 15, the longest flight we'd ever done. Hadley and Adolf from the captain's fancy had beaten us back by about 40 minutes. The Hadley crew went missing on a similar mining trip two weeks later in the Baltic. But Captain's Fancy just went on and on through the rest of 1944 and through 1945. Thank you very much, Ron.
I'd now like to call Group Captain Mike Longstaff, representing the Royal Air Force, to address you. Uh, fellow Airmen, uh, honoured guests, Chief of the Air Force, it is a great privilege for me to be here. Um, I did serve in New Zealand in the early 90s, um, across from 75 squadrons, great to see the, the old A4 here. And also flew, which is good again to see here, is the, the old Air Mackie, which I did fly uh, for a period um, whilst I was serving on the squadron. What I've been asked to do is just say a few words, really, on rather than the, the aircraft itself, but on those people that have flown it. And I think as I now um, come into the twilight of my service career, I retire next year having served 37 years, um, it is something as I progress from being a serving airman into becoming a veteran and joining York uh, ranks that I will now sort of dwell on. Uh, as a young uh, pilot serving on F-14, I was, uh, had the privilege of being sent down to Palmerston North as the duty POM to bring back the, the veterans of um, 485 Squadron, the Typhoon Squadron. And uh, it was very simple, take the fuss, Go down there, there's about 50 of them, go and find them, bring them back for happy hour. I arrived at 4 o'clock, uh, nobody to be seen. Uh, I went around the back, nobody seen in the motel at all. I went to the front desk and asked, have you seen 50 odd veterans? Yes, those beggars. <laughs> They've been here since 11, they hired the bar, we've replenished it twice. <laughs> Uh, we poured them onto the, uh, the aircraft, uh, walking sticks and all. They went to the, uh, the happy hour with the young bog rats, the young fighter pilots. Uh, we poured the bog rats out of the bar at about 11.30. We put the veterans back on their bus in good order at about midnight. Those individuals hadn't seen a lot of their friends or colleagues for over 50 years, and it was just like they'd lived next door to each other. Uh, and they picked up from the stories, uh, from the, those years ago. And it's exactly the same here. I've come back here 21 years later uh, and I'm staying with a very good friend of mine who I was here with then. And it is like literally just like picking up where we were 21 years ago. So it is undoubtedly when I look, you know, when I'm serving here or serving on the squadron, when you're lining up and looking left and right and who's with you, it's those people who were left and right, who were in that sticky situation with you who you trust, and you trust them implicitly with your life. And it's very, very rare that you walk through this world where you give trust to a fellow human being of that level. And I think we are all uh, gifted in terms of had that experience. I certainly feel as I leave the Air Force, I have a family. And it's a very, very, very broad kirk indeed. From the Royal Air Force, and then certainly from um, our new chief, Sir Andrew Pulford, who we spoke to before I left, a big uh, thanks to you, and not only you, but those who are not here, left and right today, to share this time with us. Um, it is a phenomenal uh, achievement to be standing here at such a great uh, location with a fantastic bit of heritage. And I think in a way, as we look at Bomber Command and we look at the memorial, uh, for those who haven't seen it in, um, on Green Park in Piccadilly, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of architecture. But it, took, it did take a long time for that to come. But what it is celebrating, I think above all, again goes back to this theme of the people, those who were left and right, and those who actually paid the ultimate sacrifice. So to you, thank you very, very much. It is my great honour. I've just travelled from Brunei to be here as the, the DA there in Brunei. But it is an absolute privilege. It would have been even a greater privilege if England beat New Zealand last night. Merely <laughs> <laughs> did. I was at the game. So thank you very much. I say it's a great honour and privilege. Um, and I stand here as a serving Air Force officer to shortly to join your ranks. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Group Captain Mike Longstaff. Right, I'd now like to call upon Squadron Leader Jonathan Pote, MBE, to give you a bit of an outline on the Lancaster's history and that of the Captain's fancy. Jonathan. 
Thank you, Phil. My brief is to talk about the aircraft. Do not think for a moment that I lack the admiration for the crews that other people have and have expressed today. They are the people who matter, but the aircraft reminds us of them. At the outbreak of war, Prime Minister Savage offered New Zealand's assistance on day one. With gratitude for the past and confidence for the future, we range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. We are only a small and young nation, but we march with a union of hearts and souls to a common destiny. It so happened that New Zealand had ordered 30 Wellingtons, then the best bomber available, to serve in the homeland here in New Zealand. But despite the potential threat developing in Asia, Savage immediately offered the aircraft and the air crew to the Air Ministry. That was the first offer of aid in kind from any nation to Britain. We've heard a lot of statistics today about the numbers. I prefer to keep it brief. New Zealand put a greater percentage of its population into uniform, did more and suffered more casualties than any other nation. The RAF showed its appreciation by putting those 30 aircraft with their crews together in one squadron. And they made it a squadron of the RAF, number 75, New Zealand squadron. The history of that unit, which had a tremendous ability to press home its attacks, but inevitably suffered huge casualties as a result has been told already. In 1944, Lancasters were being produced sufficiently to allow 75 New Zealand Squadron to re-equip with them. The aircraft we commemorate today, NE181, was delivered to service in the middle of May 1944 since the beginning of the year, 900 Lancasters had been built. 25 in the one factory that this aircraft was built in. Can you imagine that nowadays? Three times a day, maybe four times, another Lancaster would be pushed out of the production line, fueled up and test flown. If Britain's notorious weather prevented that, Within a week or so, they were beginning to run out of places to park them. Other factories were making an equal effort, although individually less, such that 50 Lancasters a week were being built. But Bomber Command was not getting bigger by 50 Lancasters a day. Whilst those 900 were built, 600 were lost on operations. And the numbers in Bomber Command only increased by 300. The norm at that time was that a Lancaster would complete 14 operations on average and then be lost, together with six of its seven crew. In those 600 Lancasters lost, nearly 4,000 young men died. However, NE181 passed the 14 operation average Luck, obviously, but it was very well maintained by its ground crew. And before it reached its 40th operation, somewhere around the 38th, it received its own name, which was an unusual privilege, relatively unusual privilege. It was called the Captain's Fancy. We know who the captain was because Flight Sergeant Lethbridge, who was a Kiwi and had two and his crew, had flown 25 of the aircraft's first 30 operations. Incidentally, one of those was to Germany, and the next 
20 or so were in support of the Normandy invasion, which we are celebrating this week. After that, it was Germany, Germany, Germany. So it was called the Captain's Fancy. But why the caricature, which you can't see? <laughs> the time will come. Captain Fowl of Antwiggle Hall was a character in a cartoon comic strip in a daily newspaper. He represented, as the Kiwis saw it, the idiocy and stupidity of the British upper classes. So they were delighted to put him on the side of the aircraft. His name, of course, transliterates into really foul, aren't we all? <laughs> it was getting a reputation as a dependable aircraft. And that is down to the ground crew, who I'll come to later. It became popular as the number of missions mounted. It was mainly flown by the sea flight commanders, one after another, who used their rank to obtain the best aircraft. It was the oldest, but it was the best. And eventually, Squadron Leader Jack Bailey, a Kiwi, took it on its 100th operation to Crayfelt. Most unusually, the station routine orders had an entry the following day. Item 32, commendation. The ground crew who have maintained NE181, the captain's fancy, which has completed its first 100 operations without ever failing to get airborne as detailed, are to be commended on their efforts. Only once in those hundred operations did the aircraft fail to get airborne. And the ground crew were named, so we know who these wonderful people were. And we also have an account from Fred Woolerton, who was one of them, as to why it didn't go on one operation. Hardly their fault, hardly the aircraft's fault. It was starting up, and Fred was in front, where you are. Pete, one of the other five, was inside the wheel bay. To start a Lancaster, somebody has to be inside the wheel bay, right behind the Merlin, pushing the priming pump. And he acts on the um, instructions of the man in front, who, to the pilot, points Start number three. And number three was the one they were starting. Pete had done his priming and jumped down. At that moment, another Lancaster taxied past. And we have the records to find out who was the tail gunner, but I think it would be invidious. For some reason, he opened fire with four Brownings. They went over Fred's head by about a metre. They went through the radiator of number three and through the undercarriage bay where Pete had just vacated. He was sort of crouching on the floor having jumped down. When you get close up and personal later, have a look at where he was and look at the little steps on which he stood. Seconds after he left there, several rounds came through. Of course, the aircraft was no longer flyable, had to be shut down. The crew uh, rapidly went to a reserve aircraft, and the poor old ground crew, as ever, had to sort it out. I presume the aircraft was debombed by the armourers, but then the, the faithful five got into it, and by morning the aircraft had a new radiator, the engine had been run, and it was declared fit for operations the following night. It's a little known fact, and I didn't know it until quite recently, that not only did the ground crew have an incredibly uncomfortable life servicing these aircraft out in the open, 
average of two hangars per bomber airfield, but 30 aircraft. In terrible weather, driving rain, up on a slippery surface of the wing, refueling or doing maintenance up there, no less than 1,500 of them were killed. 55,000, 55,500 air crew, but 1,500 ground crew. They deserve every bit as much admiration. After the 100, the captain's fancy continued to fly. There's a bit of problem about how many more missions it did, but we think it might have been 106. Only 30 Lancasters reached um, 100, and 75 Squadron had three of them, which is way above the average. One of those final operations was an Operation Manor drop. At the, towards the very end of the war, April 1945, the British offensive through Arnhem had been a disastrous failure. But the Canadians had got into Holland further to the east and moved right up to the coast to the north. So an area of western Holland on the coast was cut off but still occupied by the Germans. And the Dutch were starving. They were eating tulip bulbs, grass, leaves, anything that might appear to be nutritious. There was nothing quite like a horse that had just been killed in an air raid. Eisenhower was asked to invade, to liberate them, asked by the Queen and the Prince. And he said, no, we'll deal with this soon and if we, if we invade we will kill more Dutch than we save. But we will try to feed them. And so the RAF, United States Army Air Force, Canadian Army and Swedish ships were made ready and the food collected whilst permission was short sought from the occupying Germans to drop this. It had not been given when the first wave of aircraft went in. 300 aircraft by daylight down to 200 feet and flying slowly with five tons of high energy food in the bomb bays just lying on the doors, which dropped, of course, as soon as the bomb bay doors were opened. The Germans would have been thoroughly entitled under the laws of the Geneva Convention to have shot at them. And had they done so, it would have been unimaginable carnage and would make the Nuremberg raid appear not the worst. However, the Germans did hold their fire and after two days gave their permission. The Dutch civilians worked against terrible conditions to recover the food from waterlogged fields and other drop zones and to distribute it with a lack of transport to do so. The Canadians drove lorries into the south of the area under a white flag and the Swedish sent several ships into the ports. And that saved many lives. Eisenhower was right. Ten days or so later, the war was over. And no Dutch civilians had been killed in the liberation of that part of Holland. By now, it was the mood on 75 New Zealand Squadron that the captain's fancy had to come home. The Australians, after all, had flown home G for George, which to this day is beautifully restored and on display in Australia. It had flown 90 operations. They had one that had flown more than 100. So that would be very nice for the trans-Tasman antipathy. However, at no notice, the whole squadron was ordered to move to RAF Spilsby, there to re-equip with the Avro Lincoln as part of Tiger Force and then to fly out to the Far East to prosecute the war against Japan. Of course, that didn't happen, but they lost control of the captain's fancy. It went to another squadron, and in 1947, 
sadly, was scrapped. And today, rights that wrong. But don't think that the aircraft underneath the markings is any slouch either. It was built as NX-665, again, to fight the Japanese. But when the need disappeared, it was put into storage for a few years, and then became part of the Aeronaval, the French Naval Air Force. They used it over the North Atlantic, Western Atlantic, for anti-submarine duties, trying to keep an eye on what the Russians were doing. So it was a working military aircraft. When it was replaced there by more modern types, it moved to the Mediterranean, it moved to the South China Sea, and finally to New Caledonia, by now almost exclusively on air-sea rescue work and on medical evacuations from the outlying islands around New Caledonia. When it and the other two flyable Lancasters still with it were retired in 1964, they were the last three operational Lancasters by a matter of four years. The average one lasted less than a month. This one had a productive life of 20 years, very nearly. So it's a very historic aircraft in its own right. Uniquely, the RAF, in gratitude, gave 75 Squadron to New Zealand. It is the only squadron to have left the RAF, taking with it its standard, its memorabilia, its silver, its paintings, and returned to its homeland, New Zealand, where it was re-equipped with mosquitoes, and eventually with Skyhawks, until just into this century when sadly it was disbanded, but by then it was the longest continuous serving bomber squadron of what had been RAF Bomber Command. There are only five of those many squadrons still in exist today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Right, um, we have uh, various contributors who've uh, assisted us in their uh, quest to uh, have the markings put on here. So I'd now like to call Peter Wheeler, QSM, who's also the Executive Officer for the Bomb Command Association, to make a few presentations. Veterans, honoured guests, good afternoon. Being up at the front here today is really quite a pleasure because it's seen so much of a result by an effort by so many people. I guess in all good things, having the idea is often thought as being the best part. What a wonderful idea. And yet, that's probably the easiest thing because thinking of the captain's fancy, it was obvious. But getting it to this stage here today really took a lot of dedicated work by some intrepid plane spotters, record keepers, and guys who are generally press on types, you know, let's go for it. So to recognise their efforts, I'd like to call up a number of people who made special contributions. As you heard from Jonathan's speech, this aircraft and the captain's fancy have had a very long history to research, not just here today, gone tomorrow, but years and years of it. And we have people who absolutely loved delving into records, whether they be at Q or Defence Force headquarters or in logbooks. But these people are essential because, in fact, in establishing the history of this aircraft, every operation it ever served has been logged. So, Chris Newey, if you would please come forward and hear Chris, I call him the ultimate list man. He loves lists. <laughs> having got our information, having got our information, um, the next thing is to say, well, what did it look like? 
And we were fortunate, and there were a couple of paintings, and these are amateur paintings. But we had a collection of photos which, which grew and grew and grew from people's albums, from family albums, where the Captain's Fancy was a favourite aircraft to stand underneath. Look at me, Mum. Famous. And you had the other types who were allowed aboard who would hang out the pilot's window and have photographs. So we had glimpses of boots and heads and hands. Lovely black and white photographs. What colour? What colour were these things? So the next step was to get an intrepid and noted aviation artist, Pete West. If you come up, please. Now, Pete does a lot of artwork for international uh, aviation magazines, and he goes by the delightful email addresses, one-legged pom. <laughs> the um, next step is having um, converted our black and white photographs into something that looked reasonable. The important thing was to paint it here. And we've got, I hope, the, our painter, Keith Ellis, here today. He's hidden. Come forward. Um, now, this is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do because it's a long way up. You're on stands. You're on, perhaps, on your back and your knees. I've seen several times. But, uh, not quite the Sistine Chapel, but... <laughs> and, of course, it created a great deal of interest with people coming visiting. What is this? What is this? So... These three people, amongst many others, have done a lot of work to see what is finished here today. And I'd like to present you with a memento. This is a book written by the veterans who are sitting here today, illustrated by photographs from their family albums, and most importantly, signed by them in the front. Now, many of these people are no longer with us. Many are very famous. And you've got dam busters in there, you've got fighter aces in there. So it is something that is quite special. And for us, it's a token of our appreciation. Thank you. Now, having a toy this size to play with is just wonderful. And Wednesdays is our play day. And we have a gentleman who allows us to play in it. And not only does he allow us to play it, he wants to play in it too. We have had a long history. The association has had a very long history with MOTAT. At times it has been, been a little bit rocky. Other times it's been pleasurable, like a marriage perhaps. Well, maybe not. <laughs> but one of the things which we have appreciated, certainly in the last um, 18 months, is the, was the appointment of the new CEO, director of MOTAT. And very early on, he let on that he was quite taken with nose art. And so, Michael, could you come forward, please? We have a art print to present to you personally. With thanks from our association. This is a bit like the Oscars, but uh, <laughs> Michael and I don't sing. Michael, would you perhaps come back for a minute, please? I know the museum is very honoured with all the veterans who have come today and also the very special guests and I think Michael would like to say another word and we have a further presentation for our chief of vehicles. I, um, uh, I suppose it's, it's been quite a moving uh, uh, day for me. I started off down at the War Memorial Museum for the um, dedication service and then coming through here and, and Peter's absolutely right, I am a, um, I'm a bit... Uh, uh, in love with this plane, so there is an element of prejudice leaning towards it. But 
I think uh, when you look at the plane and you've heard the story, um, you can understand the significance. And I think everybody in this room, um, when we see the nose cone art and actually they understand the stories behind it, you can understand why this plane pulls you so much into, uh, um, pulls you into their life and vice versa. Um, so um, I'd like to, well, I'd like to thank Bomber Command uh, for everything they've done today. And I suppose um, I should also thank the MOTAC team uh, who have been here uh, for most of the day setting up uh, the, the seats and the sound system and everything else. Um, so thank you to uh, Peter and his team. Thank you to the MOTAC team. And I believe I have uh, a presentation today. To the Chief of the Air Force. Let's get one of these lovely books. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, thank you very much, Peter and Michael. I'm sorry to cover you all. Okay, um, now we uh, have a, a, a small dedication service, so I'd like to call upon the uh, Royal New Zealand Air Force uh, Chaplain, Squadron Leader, the Reverend Stuart Height, to perform that, please. Um, this is a, a very special occasion today when we, when we see in action the biblical uh, concept of turning swords into plowshares and we have in this aircraft NE181 that story told and so it, uh, when you hear what this um, the captain's fancy did in the, uh, the war side of things and then hear what the crew did in dropping the, the food to the uh, starving people and then also bringing prisoners of war back to England after the war that's what turning swords into plowshares is all about. I'm going to ask now that we unveil the nose cone art. We've always, you've just seen a little glimpse in the presentation that, uh, of the aircraft that went through. But um, what I want to do is, is bless this after it's unveiled. Okay, if we could have the representatives of the Weir, Emsley and Heald family, please. and this is remembering all those who served. to perform this. This commemoration is to the glory of God and in memory of those who sacrificed their lives. We dedicate uh, this memorial Lancaster in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. That's right. Could have had some several pairs of hands. <laughs> Father, Son, and 
Holy Spirit. May this aircraft commemorate the lives of all who have served and died in Bomber Command. As we acknowledge their sacrifice and the service to others. May it remind us and all who gaze upon this craft of the freedom and liberty that was bought for us through their bravery and skill and their commitment and all those who supported them on the ground. May this aircraft and the nose cone art remain an inspiration to us and all who follow to do our duty with courage and integrity in the service of God and all of humankind. And we pray that through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. final thank you and that's to the um, personnel from the Air Training Corps who uh, assisted uh, today here and especially with the unveiling um, had a very important duty up in the cockpit. <coughs> okay um, that's pretty much all for today. Um, thank you very much for coming. Uh, it's been a pleasure having so many veterans here along with all the uh, service representatives and of course the uh, Dutch Consul. Okay, um, the Lancaster will be open for visits uh, for veterans, veterans' families and the special guests should they wish to tour through it. Uh, please be aware that it is a bit of a health and safety hazard in there uh, with not much room. Um, I used to have here before I started on this project, I haven't now. <coughs> okay, so um, we'll have to limit those going into groups of four at a time purely because of uh, space reasons up there. Um, so just please be aware of that. Okay, there is an afternoon tea for the um, veterans only, I'm afraid. We have a limited amount of space, um, so veterans and the uh, special guests, um, and that's to be held down the other end there. Okay, thank you very much for attending, and um, enjoy the rest of your day. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.